Jeremiah chapter 37, 38, and 39 are our chapters tonight. Before I jump into 37, let's just go back to Sunday for a little bit. The study on Sunday was the wonder of the word. Some love it and some hate it. The Bible tells us in John 3 that people will not come to the light because they love the darkness. They just don't want to hear what it has to say. And so they can make up whatever excuse they want to for not reading it and not doing it. And uh, we gave Old Testament examples of um, through the word with um, Abraham and Isaac and Mount Moriah. Uh, we find here, as we go back to 36, we use this as our text, 27 through 32, where the last three kings of Israel before the fall, which we're going to see tonight in chapter 39, we find that Jehoiakim was not pleased with Jeremiah's prophecy that Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon is going to come and completely destroy the city. If you capitulate and give in, you'll live. And if you don't, you won't. He didn't like what he had to say, so he took it. He ripped it up and he threw it in a fire. The Lord spoke to Jeremiah and told Jeremiah to take another scroll and rewrite what he wrote on the first scroll. And thus we have it contained here, 27 through 32. And we sort of use this as a launching pad, talking about, you know, the God of a second chance, how even the children of Israel, when Moses came down, had to do it twice. And um, Exodus 34, 1 talks about the Lord telling Moses, take and write on the tablets and bring the tablets again, a second time. And uh, that was Sunday's message, the wonder of the word, and that's how uh, this ended. And now we're switching, and we're going to Zedekiah. Now, Zedekiah is going to be the final king um, that is, is going to rule and reign. We're going to see his, his uh, sons being killed tonight. Um, his eyes are going to be, the last thing he sees before he's taken into captivity, and his eyes are taken out of the death of his sons. And here's the first interview with, with Zedekiah. And as we get into this, this section of the book, which places a lot of the uh, emphasis on historical events. Um, he's been in doing this now for about 30 years. He starts, you know, as it says in Jeremiah 1, he was called from the womb. But he really started his ministry maybe in his early 20s. So at this time, he's in prison. And the king of Babylon, while well, he's in prison has the city of Jerusalem completely surrounded. They've been laying a siege. Now, a siege is something where you block off all the supplies so that the people basically are starving to death on the inside. This has been going on for about 18 months. And you can find more on this when we get to the end of Jeremiah in chapter 52. And if you're taking notes, you want to do extra credit, you can write down 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles which gives you a little bit more detailed event of what happened when Nebuchadnezzar came. This is now the third and the final time that Nebuchadnezzar has come down against Jerusalem. The first time is really the book of Daniel. And Daniel was taken along with some of his friends. Um, they came in, they took the best of the craftsmen, they took the intellectuals, they looked at people that they thought were 
cream of the crop people that would help in um, Nebuchadnezzar's um, kingdom. And Daniel would have been um, a part of those who went in the first siege. Then he came down a second time, and this time they took a lot of the treasury that was in the temple, not all of it, but a lot of it. And uh, they took some more people, and that would have been a second time. Now as we get into our study tonight, this will be the final time uh, that Nebuchadnezzar comes down. And um, what we're also gonna see this evening is them temporarily retreating because Zedekiah calls on Egypt and the Pharaoh to come and help. And as we'll get into this, as, we, as he gets that response, of course, Pharaoh's in no position to want to help them, but to do the same thing that Nebuchadnezzar is, is to conquer them. So they have their own motive. But they do withdraw for a period of time, putting everything that Jeremiah has been speaking up to this point in question. Because it looks like the Chaldeans or the Babylonians are hightailing it out of Dodge, and uh, Pharaoh is coming up, and um, the Lord's going to speak to reaffirm to Jeremiah that indeed what he's been saying for 30 years now is going to come to pass. All right, enough introduction. Chapter 37, verse 1, Then King Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, um, reigned inside of, instead of Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, made king in the land of Judah. But neither he nor his servants nor the people of the land gave heed to the words of the Lord, which he spoke by the prophet Jeremiah. And... Zedekiah, the king sent Jehuchal, the son of Shemeliah, and Zephaniah, the son of Messiah, the priest, to the prophet Jeremiah, saying, I want you to pray now to the Lord our God for us. Now, Jeremiah was coming and going among the people, and this is important, for they had not yet put him in prison. So he sort of still has free reign, and he can come and go as he wants to. Then Pharaoh's army came up from Egypt. And when the Babylonians or the Chaldeans who were laying siege to Jerusalem for these last 18 months or so, heard news of them, they departed from Jerusalem. And the word of the Lord came to the prophet Jeremiah saying, now it's just assumed here that, um, you know, People are probably thinking, well, Jeremiah is not a true prophet. Pharaoh's here to help us. The Babylonians are hightailing it out of town. So now the Lord has to speak to his servant, just like he has to do to us from time to time, just to reaffirm, re-encourage us. I meant what I said. I'm going to do what exactly what I said I'm going to do. It's going to happen. There may be things that come in that make it seem like it's not going to happen, but it is going to happen. So just be encouraged. Verse 7. So the first six verses here, um, if I would sum it up, is uh, Pharaoh is coming, not to help, but to conquest. And uh, the Babylonians leave. But now a change of thought in verse um, 
7. Oh, we could actually read this through verse 10. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Thus you will say to the king of Judah, who sent you to me to inquire of me, Behold, Pharaoh's army has come up to help you return to Egypt to their own land. And the Chaldeans, well, they're going to come back and fight against the city and take it and burn it with fire. Thus says the Lord, do not be deceived. Do not deceive yourself, saying the Chaldeans will surely depart from us, for they will not depart. For though you had defeated the whole army of the Chaldeans and fought, who fought against you when there was only a few wounded men among them that remained, they would rise up, every man in this town, and burn the city with fire. Why? Because it's the word of the Lord, he's going to accomplish it. He can do it with one. Um, or, as in the case when uh, the ten northern tribes fell to Sennacherib, the king of uh, Assyria, same deal. They had the city completely surrounded. Isaiah's freaking out. And uh, Hezekiah um, comes to him and says, don't worry about a thing. Nothing's going to change. Not one person's going to die. Not one arrow's going to come over the top. And that night, because the Lord said so, one angel took out 185,000 Assyrians, and it was the end of the Assyrian Empire, period. And uh, it was because of the word of the Lord. But just like here, Isaiah needed to be encouraged the Lord speaks to Hezekiah, and he says, I want you to go encourage this guy. He needs encouragement right now. It doesn't look good. I mean, 185,000, that's, that's a pretty good number. <laughs> City of Appleton had 100,000, but Appleton and Green Bay together. And uh, they're surrounding the city. Doesn't look too promising. So I believe from 7 to 10, the Lord again reaffirming and talking to um, Jeremiah. Yeah, this is happening. But they're going to come back. And it doesn't matter if there's only a couple of them. It's still going to happen. All right. Now, when we get to verse 11, um, it says, It happened when the army of the Chaldeans left the siege of Jerusalem for fear of Pharaoh's army, that Jeremiah went out of Jerusalem to go to the land of Benjamin. This would have been his homeland. This is where he was from to claim his property there among the people. And when he was at the gate of Benjamin, a captain of the guard was there, uh, whose name was Arijah, the son of Shalimai, the son of Hananiah. And he grabbed hold of Jeremiah, the prophet, and said, basically, you're a traitor. You're defecting to the Babylonians. So here he goes to his hometown. They don't understand what's happening. He's come there to claim his rightful part of his land. And uh, Jeremiah says, that's not true, it's false. I'm not defecting to the Chaldeans. But he did not listen to him, even though it was true. So Irijah seized Jeremiah and brought him to the princes. And therefore, the princes were angry with Jeremiah. They struck him. And they put him in prison in the house of Jonathan the scribe, for they had made that the prison. So talk about having a tough day. First you need to get encouraged. <laughs> and then you go home, 
to your hometown, and uh, they think you're a traitor, and uh, they turn you into the princes who get even, get more angry with Jeremiah for taking off. And none of it's true, but it doesn't matter, and they take him and they put him in prison. And when Jeremiah entered the dungeon and the cells, and Jeremiah had remained there many days. Um, in these verses here, there are five recorded imprisonments of this prophet. Talk about a tough job that um, he had. Uh, the imprisonment described in this ch- chapter was due to the fact um, of what he did when he went back to his, his hometown. And so we have this fifth. Keep track of it because we're not done. He's going to go from here to a different prison before we're through with our study tonight. Now, 17 through 21, so Jeremiah is now in prison. Um, Zedekiah asked Jeremiah to go and, and inquire of the Lord. So let's pick it up, and that'll be the rest of chapter 37. Change of thought in verse 17. Then Zedekiah the king sent, took him out, so he brought him out of prison, and the king asked him secretly in the house and said, is there any word from the Lord? And Jeremiah said, there is. Then he said, you shall be delivered into the hands of the king of Babylon. Now what I like about this is he's out of prison. And it had me going through the back of the mind. If I tell the king what he wants to hear, maybe he won't put me back in the prison. But he doesn't compromise. He stands his ground. He's looking for him to tell him something different. But Jeremiah is sticking with what the Lord has told him. Any, any word from the Lord? Yep, there is. What is it? Well, you're going to be delivered into the hands of the king of Babylon. We're not, just not talking about Jerusalem now. This is a personal question from the king. And it's directed at him. And moreover, Jeremiah said to King Zedekiah, What offense have I committed against you, against your servants, or against this people, that you put me in prison? What did I do wrong? I went to my hometown. Why am I in prison? Now, this makes me think of the Lord when he was being questioned by Caiaphas and Pilate and uh, they're bringing accusations. And basically the Lord says, tell me, your charges right now. Which one of my good works didn't you like? Because he only went around doing good. And um, it's the same sort of deal here that Jeremiah is saying, what did I do wrong? I went to my hometown. They falsely accused me of being a traitor. I'm not a traitor. I went to check out my property that's part of my inheritance. And so... Where was I, 18? 18, moreover, Jeremiah said to the king, what offense have I committed against you, against your servants or against this people, that you put me in prison? Where now are your prophets who prophesied to you, saying the king of Babylon will not come against you and against the land? Therefore, please hear me. Now he's begging him. O my lord, the king, please let my petition be accepted before you, and do not make me return to the house of Jonathan the scribe, lest I die in there. He doesn't want to go back to prison. He doesn't want to go especially on false, trumped-up charges. 
And um, so he's pleading with the king to do the right thing. There's no reason that I should have been put there. And then Zedekiah the king commanded that they should commit Jeremiah to the court of the prison. So he's out of prison, uh, and that they should give him a daily piece of bread for the baker's street. Now this is important because it shows just how desperate the people are in Jerusalem. Until all the bread in the city was gone. So the nooses coming closer and closer and closer to the people in Jerusalem. As every day goes by, there's less food. There's less water. And um, that's what a siege is meant to do, to starve you out. But um, Zedekiah uh, listens to Jeremiah, and he's commanded to take him out. Now he can walk around. He's not in the prison. He has freedom to walk around. Thus, Jeremiah remained in the court of the prison, and he was ordered to give a portion of bread. I want to just do a little sidetrack here. Have you turn to the book of Matthew in the New Testament? Matthew 5. They accused the Lord falsely. They brought in false witnesses, just like Jeremiah had these false witnesses that spread rumors to the princes that got him thrown into jail. None of that was true. But... As we try to connect the dots between Jeremiah's time and our time, and um, every day there's something new that's happening to pointing to why it's so important to be having Bible prophecies, talking about the importance of prophecy and fulfillment of prophecy, and um, but what goes along with it. And... Um, Prophecy conferences around the country are becoming less and less. The subject of Bible prophecy is being taught less and less. Rick Warren will go as far as to tell you that um, Jesus said not even to talk about Bible prophecy. He completely pulls the scripture out of context and he makes it um, part of his explanation why we shouldn't even be talking about prophecy at all and anybody that knows their bible clearly sees that he took scripture it always has to be in context and what's before it and what's after it well he clearly takes something out and puts it into a section of his book and um and he applies it my point here is if you're going to be true to this book then there's the Lord clearly said that there's going to be consequences that go along with you standing your ground. So when I think of Jeremiah, thinking in the back of his head, all right, here I am standing before the king. I got out of prison. He wants to know if the Lord's got anything new to say. And he says, yeah, but it's not new. <laughs> it's the same message that I've been saying for the last 30 years. So let's pick it up in Matthew 5. This, these are the Beatitudes. Blessed means, literally, oh, how happy. Oh, how happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But I want to jump down to verse 10, where he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. What was Jeremiah's crime? The answer, nothing. His crime was that he was given the word of the Lord. He wasn't to add to it. He wasn't to take any away from it. 
He was simply to proclaim it. Good place for an amen. That's our job. And um, it may not be popular. It may not um, um, have people hear what they want to hear. But I can tell you this, if you want truth, and the whole truth and nothing but the truth, all you have to do is read your Bible. It's really that simple. And don't add anything to it or take anything from it. So along with holding to the words of the Lord, um, there will be persecution for righteousness' sake. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he says, blessed are you when you reviled, Jeremiah, or you, and persecuted, and they say all kinds of evil things against you falsely. That's exactly what happened to Jeremiah. He went to his hometown. He's a Benjaminite. Oh, you're defecting. You're a traitor. And then they pass it up to the higher up, and they throw, throw him in prison. I call that persecution. And um, they falsely accusedly for my name's sake. In Jeremiah's case, it was for the Lord's sake. He was just giving them the word of the Lord. And then he said, uh, for my sake, rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets. I wonder if the Lord is thinking of Jeremiah at this time. He's called the weeping prophet. He had a broken-hearted message that he gave for 40 years of his entire life. He preached it before, as you're going to see tonight, during, and then after. And he was faithful. Was it a happy message? Absolutely not. Was it the word of God? Absolutely it was. And he said, when that happens to you, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let me just talk a little bit about the prophets from Hebrews chapter 11. We call it the hall of faith. Um, I, th- I love the Packers and I love Brett Favre but I think Brett somewhere along the line should say, okay guys, enough is enough. <laughs> On TV tonight they had this guy who had this Ultimate Brett Favre collection, like none other. Anybody see it on TV besides me? And they, they're opening a whole new room for Brett um, up in uh, at Lambeau. And the whole thing is just simply dedicated to him. And don't get me wrong, I, I love football and the Packers and grew up with sports my whole life. But um, if we'd be honest with that, um, we got to say, uh, where, do, where does that line up with my list of priorities that I prioritize in what I worship and who I serve and where, where are the lines drawn here when it comes in seeking, when it says, seek ye first the kingdom of heaven? You know, we live in a culture uh, that is spoiled. How else do I say it? Do I dare ask for an amen? <laughs> we are. You know, we don't have persecution. You know, uh, not not like the experience um, in, well, let's just say Saudi Arabia. You can't have a Bible study in Saudi Arabia. You can't even have a Bible. And um, it is strictly forbidden. And um, you're watched if, if such is even uh, suspected, much less ISIS. And, um, but anyway, Hebrews 11 is a who's who that we're to look up to 
as examples of people who did it right and that who are commendable, not by worldly standards, but by God's standards. I'll just read, I'll pick it up in verse 35. Women received their dead raised to life, that would be Elijah. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still, others had trials of mockering. There's Jeremiah. He was tried for going to his hometown and scourgings. Yes, chains and imprisonment, Jeremiah. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. That's what happened to Isaiah. Were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, and I love this, of whom the world was not worthy. Boy, talk about when we sing this world is not my home. I hope you believe it and mean it. And um, that we really are looking for the, the blessed hope that this we're just passing through. We're pilgrims and strangers. We're to touch this world ever so lightly. Paul said to Timothy, if you're going to be a good soldier, Timothy, of this world, then touch it lightly. Don't get your fingers and your, your claws too deeply entrenched because it's temporal. It's passing. Um, just going over to Jerry's place today, he just moved into this place, but I, as I looked around, it was two chairs, not one picture on the wall, <laughs> and, um, and some books that he was reading. And, you know, he's working with the, with the bare necessities. But I like this, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth, and all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God, having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. And um, again, we have the good news and the surprise of the Jews when Cornelius got saved. He's a Gentile. How can a Gentile possibly get saved? But as Peter's witnessing to him, the Holy Spirit falls out in the Bible study group. They begin to speak in tongues. And uh, he says the Jews were astonished that the Holy Spirit would be given to Gentiles. So when we read here, the connecting that for us would be made perfect apart from us, we're talking about the Lord and his wisdom saving Gentiles. We talked about this at the baptism. That what's to forbid these guys from being baptized seeing that they already have the Holy Spirit. Now, one of the points that I'd get a a sidetrack from that is you can't put the Lord in a box when it comes to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Yes, we use the example in Acts 8 where Philip had the revival and they were all baptized, but the Holy Spirit hadn't fallen on them yet. So they called for Peter and John to come up from Jerusalem to lay hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. And I mentioned when we had that study, that's Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, that says, now leaving the elementary principles of the doctrine of dead works, then having faith towards God, there's an order here, not saved, getting saved, then the doctrine of baptism, and then it says the laying on of hands. And it almost implies like it's a chronological order. But what I'm here to say is you can't put the Lord in a box. Because with Cornelius, he twists it right around. And he gets saved as a Gentile. 
and everybody there in the Bible study, and they're all filled with the Holy Spirit. And then Peter says, why can't they be baptized? And you have the order completely reversed. And my point with saying all of that is don't think there's a formula because the Lord can change the formula any way he wants to. Uh, my good buddy Pat begged for the baptism of the Holy Spirit and, and it wasn't happening. And uh, he'd complain about it and moan about it. And one day, driving his car down Highway 41, God decided to baptize him in the Holy Spirit. <laughs> On Highway 41, what a sense of humor the Lord has, I think. Pat had to pull over to the side of the road because it was an overwhelming experience. And um, I remember it clearly, and I like the story because it, it just makes me wonder how bad you really want it. And again, the context of asking for the Holy Spirit is in the context of Luke 11, where he uses a father talking to his son about being hungry. Is he going to give him food? Well, if he's really hungry, yeah, he will. Well, then how much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who want it? But I would, it's not want it, but how much do you really want it? How much do you really want to serve other people? Because all the gifts of the Spirit, when they're given, are to build up somebody else's faith. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 12. If you're zealous for spiritual gifts, if you want them, then let it be that you use that gift to build up somebody else. But, again, this is, this is the bummer and the downside of living in the United States of America because we're very self-absorbed with ourselves and entertainment and all the stuff that we can have simply because we live in the United States of America. But when the heat is on and the pressure is on, it's like a pressure cooker that drives us almost to the Lord. Here, all the people in Hebrews 11 that we're supposed to be looking up to, what did they have to go through? Destitute, um, wandering, tempted, cut in two, mocked, scourged, imprisoned. I mean, the whole book of Jeremiah is a bummer as far as finding any words of encouragement. And yet, it is, it is encouraging because when we're honest with our walk with the Lord, that this is, this is real life. You'll have good days and you'll have tough days. And unless you read that in the Bible and we read here that we're supposed to rejoice when we get persecuted, really? Well, nah, now I think of the Philippian jailer. Here's Paul and Silas. They get the snot beat out of them. They get whipped. They get rods beaten on them and thrown in the inner prison. So what do they do? Midnight. They're worshiping the Lord. And an angel causes an earthquake to take place, and they could have taken off, but they didn't. And, and um, my point with all that is when you do go through trials, what's your countenance like? Do you go around because you want people to know you're really going through a, a trial? Or um, do you do what the Scripture says here and what Peter and Silas did, and they actually worshiped the Lord? What was the result of them worshiping the Lord? Philippian jailer got saved. So did his whole family. For doing what? For praising the Lord when it was really going tough. Boy, am I getting off track or what? I'm not even in the ballpark anymore. We better get back to Jeremiah. And we left off 
In 17 through 21 of chapter 37, the last part of it here. And now we're in 38. And we find, did we get through verse 6? No, no, we were picking it up here. So picking up in verse, well, let's read the first six verses here. Now, Sephathiah, uh, the son of, holy smokes, Matadgiladiah, the son of Pasher. I'm just going to go with the first guy. Two guys here. First one is Shephatiah, and then there's Pasher. Um, the, they heard the words that Jeremiah had spoken to all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, He who remains in the city shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. But he who goes over to the Babylonians shall live. His life will be a prize to him, and he will live. Thus says the Lord, The city shall surely be given into the hand of the king of Babylon's army, which shall take it. Therefore, the prince said to the king, Please let this man be put to death. For thus he weakens the hands of the men of war who remain in the city and the hands of all the people who speak such words to them. For this man does not seek the welfare of the people, but to do them harm. No, these aren't encouraging words at all, but they're not intended to be. Um, God is judging. And as far as they're concerned, you're a downer, Jeremiah, and you're just bringing the people even farther down And so we're going to deal with it. So then Zedekiah the king said, look, it's in your hand. So now Zedekiah backs off. He brought him out of prison once, but now he backs off from being peer pressure here. For the king can do nothing against you. So he turns, Zedekiah turns Jeremiah over to this rabble-rousing group. So they took Jeremiah and cast him into the dungeon. Now, the dungeon is different than the prison. The dungeon of Melchakai, the king's son, which was in the court of the prison, and they let Jeremiah down with ropes. In the dungeon, there was no water but mire, so Jeremiah sank in the mire. I just want you to think about that for a second. We're talking about muck. And um, sometimes if you're walking along a river that has a mucky shoreline. We've all done it one time or another where it's muck and it's not sand. And you get that point where it becomes suction and you, couldn't get, you can't get out if you want to. You've got to have somebody pull you out of there. So I can see Jeremiah being lowered down into this thing and he's not moving. He's not going anywhere. He's stuck in this position and now it's only a matter of time and he's a dead man. So the first um, six verses, one through six, Zedekiah has, he, he, he bows to the peer pressure. And, um, and that's what's happening, I think, in the church today. Do, dumb down the doctrine. Make sure the people keep coming. They won't be able to endure a whole book of Jeremiah. That's not very happy clappy. But my attitude to, towards that is, oh yeah, they will. Because the ones who really, really want some meat on their steak, and not just milk all the time. They want all of it. They want the full picture. And I commend those that, that are laboring in the word because that's what we're doing. When we do the chapter by chapter and verse by verse, 
We're laboring in it, laying it all out. So when we get to scriptures like Hebrews 11, it has a whole new mindset for us. When it says some were cut in two and they were tortured and they were accused falsely. Well, instead of just reading that verse, all of a sudden we had, bam, we got the whole book of Jeremiah staring at us. And we think, yeah, look what he went through. But you know what? He was faithful. He was faithful what God called him to do, and he could have cared less what anybody else thought. And especially this part here where Zedekiah brings him out in chapter 37 and uh, says, hey, I want a one-on-one with you. I want you to tell me what's really going on and what the Lord is really saying. And um, he didn't back down one iota, even with the thought of possibly, he didn't want to go back to prison. He said so, get me out of this place. All right, let's pick it up in uh, verse 7. Um, we have now um, the Lord stepping in and delivering Jeremiah out of the miry clay. So let's read verses 7 through 13. Now, Abimelech, the Ethiopian, and one of the eunuchs that had put Jeremiah in the dungeon when the king was sitting at the gate of Benjamin, Ebed-Melech went out of the king's house and spoke to the king, saying, My lord the king, these men have done evil in all they've done to Jeremiah, the prophet, whom they've cast into the dungeon. He's likely to die from hunger in the place where he is, for there's no bread in the city. So we went from having a little bread in the last chapter, now there's no bread in the city. Then the king commanded Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, saying, Take from here, I want you to take 30 men with you, I want you to lift Jeremiah the prophet, because that's probably what it took with that much suction being sucked in, of the dungeon before he dies. And so Ebed-Melech took the men with him, went into the house of the Lord under the treasury, took from there the old clothes, the old rags, and let them down by ropes into the dungeon to Jeremiah. And then Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, said to Jeremiah, Please put these old clothes and rags under your armpits, under the ropes, and Jeremiah did so. And so they pulled Jeremiah up with the ropes, lifted him out of the dungeon, and Jeremiah remained in the court of the prison. So if you're counting, this is seven. One from the prison, but this, he is now in the miry clay. When you read the Psalms, many times David, or one of the psalmists, um, refers to being lifted out of the pit. The Lord has lifted me up and he's brought me out of. Just, let's quickly just turn for an example, not too long. Let's go to Psalm 18. I'm not sure if it uses the word miry pit, but in other places it does. It's when he was running from Saul. I like this. Bruce and Teresa Mueller put it to music, so when I read it, I got a melody in my head. It says, I will love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my strength, in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation and my stronghold. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and so I will be delivered, saved from my enemies. Just go over to verse 16. He sent from above, and he took me. He drew me out of many waters. 
Some places it, it refers to, and I thought it was in Psalm 18, he brought me out of the miry pit. But here he says, he brought me out of many waters. He delivered me from the strong army, from those who hated me. And so when I think of this verse here where he's brought out of the miry pit, here's David saying exactly the same thing, only putting it to music, and um, which brings in the emotional heart relief that comes from being delivered from your enemies and actually being lifted up. And here we have a picture of it, literally. Um, Jeremiah, you down there? Here's some clothes. Put these under your armpits. We're going to try to bring you up. And so he's lifted up. And beginning now in verses 14 to 28, we have the rest of this chapter, the... um, When we get to verse 14, then Zedekiah the king sent and had Jeremiah the prophet brought to him and the third entrance to the house of the Lord. And the king said to Jeremiah, I will ask you something. Hide nothing from me. And then Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, if I declare it to you, will you not surely put me to death? And if I give you counsel, will you not listen to me? So Zedekiah the king swore secretly to Jeremiah, saying, As the Lord lives, who made our very souls, I will not put you to death, nor will I give you into the hands of the men that seek your life. Then Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, Thus says the Lord God, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, If you surely surrender to the king of Babylon's princesses, then your soul shall live. This city will not be burned with fire, and you and your house will live. But if you do not surrender to the king of Babylon's princes, then this city shall be given into the hand of the Chaldeans. They will burn it with fire, and you shall not escape from their hand. And Zedekiah the king said to Jeremiah, I am afraid of the Jews who have defected to the Chaldeans, lest they deliver me into their hands and they abuse me. But Jeremiah said, they shall not deliver you. Please, this is all like, this, the, with this pleading with them just to listen to him, uh, is so much like Romans 12 where Paul says, I beseech you, that's a way of saying, I beg you, brethren, that you present your, your bodies you know, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto the Lord, begging us to do that. Jeremiah knows what's going to happen. So he's begging the king. I know what's coming down. I know what's going to happen. And if you don't do it, don't worry about the prayer pressure of these other people. But just do what the Lord says and you're, you're going to be fine. Please obey the voice of the Lord, which I speak to you. So it will be well with you and your soul will live. But if you refuse to surrender, this is the word of the Lord has shown me. Now behold, all the women who are left in the king of Judah's house shall be surrendered to the king of Babylon's princes. And those women will say, your close friends have set upon you or misled you and prevailed against you. And your feet have sunk in the mire and they have turned away again. So they shall surrender all your wives and your children to the Chaldeans 
you shall not escape from the hand, but shall be taken by the hand of the king of Babylon, and you shall cause the city to be burned with fire. Notice, and you will cause. And then Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, let no one know of these words, and you shall not die. But if the princes hear that I have talked with you, then they, uh, they shall come to you and say to you, declare to us now what you have said to the king, and also what the king said to you. Do not hide it from us, and we will not put you to death. And then you will say to them, I presented my request before the king that he would not make me return to Jonathan's house to die there. And then all the princes came to Jeremiah and asked him, and he told them according to all the words that the king had commanded. So they stopped speaking with him, for the conversation had not been heard. So basically, they didn't know what was going on. It was this one-on-one thing between Jeremiah and Zedekiah. Now Jeremiah remained in the court of the prison until the day that Jerusalem was taken, and he was there when Jerusalem was taken. Now, what we have here is what's called the beginning of the times of the Gentiles. And just a little sidetrack here, this could be a very long Bible study all by itself, but I need you to turn to Luke chapter 21. Luke 21, and look at verses 20 to 24. The times of the Gentiles. The phrase comes from Luke 21, picking up at verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, and we're going to be going through this in depth on Sunday, then know that its desolation is near. Then let those in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are in the midst of her depart and let those who are in the house country enter in. For these are the days of vengeance that all things which are written may be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant, those who are nursing babies in those days. For there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword to be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles. And then it says, until. Until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Some good Bible teachers disagree on um, the ending of the time of the Gentiles. Uh, But most agree, we all agree on one thing that the beginning of the time of the Gentiles would have been what we just read at the end of chapter 38. And it's a past tense thing. The Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar, are Gentiles. And they were taken into captivity. This was the beginning of the times of the Gentiles. And it won't have the end of the time of the Gentiles, I believe, until... um, The Antichrist is defeated, and his kingdom is over, and the Lord Jesus Christ comes back and rules again. Now, there's people who put different time frames on there. What I want to point out is, um, well, here I can just read what McGee has to say on this particular verse. Um, I insists that the Gentiles are still treading down Jerusalem. The Gentiles are still actually in control 
and Israel doesn't really control the holy place in the land except the wailing wall where they go and weep. The words of the Lord Jesus are still true, and he believes it goes on till the times of into the tribulation that's talk, talked about here. But anyway, the phrase itself, the time of the Gentiles, where does it begin? It begins in Jeremiah chapter 38, verse 28. Now Jeremiah remained in the court of the prison until the day that Jerusalem was taken. At that moment, when Jerusalem was taken, was the beginning of the time of the Gentiles. Our last chapter tonight, 39, which I want to get through, but it's only 18 verses long, so I think we'll make it, is actually the fall of Jerusalem. Now, in the ninth year of Zedekiah, the king of Judah, in the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and all of his army came against Jerusalem and besieged it. In the eleventh year of Zedekiah, in the fourth month, on the ninth day of the month, now this would have been the month of Av. Uh, The city was burned on the ninth of Av. And... um, I've mentioned this before, but in case you've never heard it, Herod's temple was destroyed on the 9th of Av. And I actually, a couple weeks ago, put all the events in world history that happened to the Jewish people on the 9th of Av. They were expelled out of Spain on the 9th of Av. Same in France or Germany on the 9th of, of Av. So here we have the very date. Um... The city was penetrated, verse 3, Then all the princes of the king of Babylon came in, and they sat in the middle gate. And then we have, you see all these names right here? And it goes on for a whole verse. And then it says, With the rest of the princes of the king of Babylon. So your job is to go home tonight and to pronounce those words out loud to your wife or your husband before you go to bed. And so it was. When Zedekiah, the king of Judah, and all the men of war saw them, that they fled and went out of the city by night, by the way of the king's garden, by the gate between the two walls, and he went out by the way of the the plain. But the Chaldeans' army pursued them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. Now, they they really made it quite a ways. It's all downhill, uh, but it's still a good 45-minute drive by bus going from Jerusalem down to Jericho. So they caught up with them down in the plains of Jericho, which is at the northern tip of the Dead Sea, if not the oldest, next to Damascus, one of the oldest cities in the world, and, and certainly the lowest city in the world. And so they catch up with Zedekiah. When they captured him, They brought him up to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, to Riblah, in the land of Hamath, where he pronounced judgment on him. Then the king of Babylon killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes in Riblah. The king of Babylon also killed the nobles of Judah. Moreover, he put out Zedekiah's eyes bound him with bronze fetters to carry him off to Babylon, exactly like Jeremiah said would happen. So the last thing 
And um, it's not just losing your sight, but actually seeing your own sons killed before your eyes. That's the last thing they see. And the Chaldeans burned the king's house and the house of the people with fire and, and broke down the walls of Jerusalem. And then Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried away captive to Babylon the remnant of the people who remained in the city and those who uh, defected to him and with the rest of the people who remained. But Nebuzaradan, the captain of the king, left in the land of Judah the poor people who had nothing, and he gave them vineyards and fields at the same time. So in verses... Uh, 1 through 10, we have Zedekiah heading for Jericho. They catch up with him. They bring him back to Nebuchadnezzar. Kills his boys in front of him, puts out his eyes. They bind him, and they take him off to Babylon. The rest of chapter 39 is 11 through 14 is going to be Jeremiah's release. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, gave charge concerning Jeremiah to uh, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, saying, I want you to take him. I want you to look after him. I do not want you to harm him, but do to him just as he says to you. Whatever he wants, he gets. So Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, sent uh, Nebashaban, and Rabzeris, and um, the rest of these guys, and all the kings of Babylon's chief officers. And they sent someone to take Jeremiah from the court of the prison and committed him to Gedaliah, the son of Ahiakim, the son of Shephan, that he should take him home so he dwelt with his people. So he now goes back to Benjamin. What do you want to do, Jeremiah? I want to go home. So now, when he went there before, he went there as a defector. Now he's coming under guard back to the tribe of Benjamin, to his home. And um, um, nobody's going to say a word because they have the princes of Nebuchadnezzar under this captain named uh, Nebuzabadan. Now, it ends with um, a reward in the last part, and this is where we'll close up tonight. It says, now the word of the Lord had come to Jeremiah while he was shut up in the court of the prison, saying, go speak to Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will bring my words upon this city for adversity, not for good, and they shall be performed in the day before you. But I'm going to deliver you this day, says the Lord, and you shall not be given into the hands of the men of whom you are afraid, for I will surely deliver you. You shall not fall by the sword, but your life shall be a prize to you, because you have put your trust in me, says the Lord. The majority did not want to hear a word Jeremiah had to say. But now we have this reward for this guy named Ebed-Meliak. You know, who would ever know that a guy like this even existed? 
and yet his name's going to be around forever and ever and ever and ever. Well, what did he do that was so different than everybody else? He simply believed the word of God. He believed what Jeremiah was saying. And um, we're going back a little bit, and he's being reaffirmed. Do what the Lord says. And if you do what the Lord says, everything is going to be fine. So as we close the Bible study tonight, let's leave it with the question that the disciples asked um, Jesus. And that is, Lord, what good work can we do? What do you want us to do um, that we could have eternal life? What good work, what works do you want us to do? And now this is the word of the Lord. And the Lord said to him, believe on him whom the Father has sent. That's it? That's it. Uh, well, what about good works? No, I didn't say good works, did I? He said, just believe on the one whom he has sent. And the Lord is pointing to himself. So what's the word of the Lord for us tonight? And the truth that will set us free. Don't compromise. If, if the Bible says it, that should be the end of this discussion. If people come in and they have questions about something, I try to let them know right away. I hope you're not looking for my opinion. Um, I can tell you what God's word has to say about this situation. And then I'll leave it up to you to either receive it or not. But with this comes such soundness and freedom that it takes all the pressure off of you on trying to get your act together to do the right thing. I got a chance to witness to a couple guys. I won't mention who they were, but um, uh, neither one of them are saved, and, but I do business with them. And so I was over there, and he says, Dwight, I haven't seen you in a long time. What have you been up to? And um, he said, some of your people from church have been coming in and uh, telling us that um, you, th- you do things differently over there. <laughs> that was the way they put it. And they said, but they really liked it. And I thought, well, wow, great. I got, a, I got a great open door to share uh, with them. And, and then he started down this road. He said, I've been doing my... I've been trying so hard to be good. Boy, is it hard to be good. But I'm getting better. And the other guy that was standing there listening to this, and then he pipes in. He says, yeah, there's some things in my life I'm really trying to straighten out, and I'm sure I'm going to get it down. And I looked at it, and I said, guys, I've been at this a long time. You're never going to make it. (laughs) You're never going to get to that point. Paul, at the end of his life, says, I have not yet attained what I've been apprehended for. I'm, I've not made it, and I'm not going to make it. And you're not ever going to attain perfection. Yes, he will change you little by little, bit by bit, into his glory. But as far as he's concerned, I said, guys, I'm not going to preach to you, but I'm going to give you one verse, and I want you to think about it. And it's the whole Bible study in one verse. It's the whole gospel, I told them. I says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, it said, he made him who knew no sin, and one of the guys started nodding his head, he knew I was talking about Jesus, he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become and have the righteousness of God. It's the great exchange. You're never gonna arrive at it because Jesus has already done all of it 
And all you have to do is receive it. And when that happens, he takes all your sin. Because you're not going to get your act totally together. You are going to continue to sin. But the good news is this. When you do that, God now looks at you as if he's looking at Jesus Christ himself who knew no sin. So that you might have his righteousness. And um, they didn't know quite what to say to that. But it, it got them thinking. And I'm confident in this, and I'll close because I'm right at my time. (laughs) And that is that God's word never returns void. You know what my simple prayer for those guys are? Is that that scripture goes through their head like a broken record, that they can't sleep at night, they they have insomnia, and all they can do is think of that one verse. Isn't that a great prayer request? (laughs) Let's stand up and we'll close in prayer. Lord, thank you for your word tonight. Thank you that Jeremiah wouldn't change his tune. He would not compromise. And if we take anything from this man as he's held up by you in Hebrews chapter 11 in the hall of faith, that he's commended under the pressure of compromising with your word. We thank you for the scriptures, Lord. And as we consider that everything that he had said all for 30 years finally comes to pass tonight in chapter 38, And all the things that the false prophets were saying were proved just that. They were false prophets. And so, Lord, we leave tonight just grateful that we have your word. And um, we pray that you would continue that sanctifying work in us, but knowing that we've already been justified and we already have been given your righteousness. For this we are grateful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.